Chapter 5 The Beginnings of the Endings Living with cancer means that one key question consistently recurs. Is this the beginning of the end? Most people with cancer live through many cycles with this question. Tracy and I both did our best not to invest in thinking about beginnings and endings. We tried not to hold our breath, not to let the fear build every three months when it became time for another round of tests. We try not to consult the runes of our intuition or take as evidence how Tracy had been feeling immediately prior to tests. Certainly we had many months, whole years, when results were good and Tracy motored along. But it felt like a losing battle. The mental pull toward that question is immense. Certainly, February 2006 was the beginning of the end, when Tracy's cancer moved to the bones in her back. She went from stage 1 diagnosis to stage 4. Certainly, August 2013 was the beginning of the end, when the last of the estrogen suppression drugs stopped working, and since her radiation dosage levels had already been maximized, she had to go back on chemo. Fortunately, they were chemo pills, less toxic in their overall impact on the body. But the cancer had moved to her liver. Certainly October 2015 was the beginning of the end because the chemo pills had proven ineffective. The tumors in her liver were growing. Now she had to get chemo through an IV and was going to lose her hair again. January 2016 was the beginning of the end because the IV chemo drugs were not slowing the progress of the cancer, now spread to her lungs. Certainly May 6th was the beginning of the end when that second, more toxic chemo was not having discernible impact other than making Tracy nauseated and weak. She could hardly keep food down. She went off chemo altogether and onto painkillers. Certainly that was the final beginning of the end. Or not. On that May 6th day, when we arrived in San Francisco for her appointment, she broke down crying in the car. She said she didn't want to go. I just held her and waited. I was perfectly prepared to turn around and drive home. I understand was all I could say. It's shocking how little you can say at moments like these. In conversation after conversation, I understand was the most I could muster. I don't want to die, she'd cry out as I held her. Finally, I just stopped saying anything. Fuck words. They're insufficient or inappropriate. If only we could have had the penultimate conversation about ending her chemo treatments with Dr. Lopez before she got that final toxic dose. Then she might not have spent the first week of her brief remaining post-chemo life feeling like shit. But he came round only after she finished the dose. I took him aside and mentioned that I had upcoming trips planned for Colorado and the UK. Should I cancel them? He nodded. She's not responding to the chemo positively in a sustained way. She was doing fine just a week ago. The test results were good but now she's clearly in a lot of pain and the cancer is spreading again. We returned to Tracy's side. He proceeded to have a more in-depth version of the same conversation with her. 
I can't go on like this, Tracy said. Dr. Lopez nodded. It's having no discernible positive impact. It's time to give it up. It's not making a difference, and you don't have the strength to stand up to a stronger, more toxic chemo. In the best of worlds, you'll gather strength, put on weight, and be able in six months to try a different, stronger chemo. Not an encouraging prospect. Certainly nothing to pin our hopes to. And there it was, maybe the first, only, and real beginning of the end. I'm in shock, Tracy said when he left. We sat together in silence and felt the enormity. I held her hand. She cried softly. I waited until she was ready. There was nowhere to go and nothing to do. On our way out, one of Tracy's favorite nurses, who tended to her lovingly for many years, came rushing up to us in the hall. She threw her arms around Tracy and wept. The two held each other and cried together softly, whispering final endearments. It must be immeasurably difficult for the nurses and staff in the oncology ward. They tend so ably, often for such long periods, to their beloved patients, only to see them suddenly disappear with a death sentence, and probably, more often than not, no final goodbye. And yet, that wasn't to be the final beginning of the end. Tracy continued making plans for visits well into August with friends and family. She talked about taking sick leave in the fall. She even mentioned accompanying me to an October conference in Cancun. Two weeks later, on her final visit with Dr. Lopez, he said she might have six months. To us, that felt like a huge reprieve. I let myself be lifted by the prospect. But I was kidding myself. In my gut, I knew better. She was going fast. I found myself caught between the public position I took with Tracy, six months, and the private one that I shared directly with everyone I could, come fast. The big hope was that she could live to see her second grandson born in early September. He was actually born five weeks early, the end of July, but that turned out to be three weeks after Tracy died. Between all those beginnings of the end comes a lot of living. The phrase is truly meaningless unless it's applied equally to everything, which, again, renders it meaningless. I now use it only tongue-in-cheek. Certainly every breath has a beginning, middle, and end. So does, in a sense, every moment. Following the course of Tracy's cancer, all these beginnings and endings, deaths and births, were real, and yet not real. If only we could live our lives knowing we die in each moment and are reborn in the next, then maybe when real death comes it won't seem like such a shock. We'll experience it as the most natural course of things, the latest in a long series of similar dyings. Tracy knew her dying was hard on Dr. Lopez. She came back from that final meeting with him with those very words on her lips. That was so like Tracy, to be concerned about how others who cared for her were taking the news of her dying. She was one of his shining success stories, having made it through ten years with stage four. They had a marvelous relationship. When she would cry, he would tear up and hold her. 
It was abundantly clear that he truly cared for his patients. He loved to laugh. His raucous howl was audible throughout the ward. But she felt let down by him in the end because of his awkward and uninformed handoff to palliative care. In that final goodbye, she felt uninformed and uncared for. We had little clue what the painkilling meds he had prescribed would do. There was no warning how they would constipate her, setting into motion a series of complications that eventually led to her eight-day hospital stay a month later. Journal Entry, May 12, 2016 About two weeks ago, we were in bed together and talking about her dying. She turned to me and said, crying, I don't know how to do this. I've never done this before. Of course, I started crying, and I said, me too. We're both virgins. This is what happens when people are totally unsupported by their culture in experiencing and facing death. And of course, no matter the preparation, we're all virgins until it's our time. We need both, to get the cultural support we need to prepare and to recognize that ultimately we will take that journey alone. Sitting now in her office while she's off teaching her last class, last class of the semester, last class of her college career, last class forever. That's the biggest challenge perhaps these days, being with and in every moment, while also experiencing it as a moment of future-projected nostalgia. Is this the last time? Fill in the blank. That goes through my head about 20 times a day. I suppose it's natural, but it's essential that I don't let it get in our way. End of journal entry. When Tracy returned from class, she began her final look around her office. She knew she was closing out her professional life. She took a few things she had immediate need for at home, but then she examined her walls full of books. Though a mere fragment of the many she had collected throughout her lifetime, there were hundreds. You can give my books to the library. She cried and I held her. This will be my last time here, she said with a steady voice. She loved that office, and she loved everything it represented about who she was in the world, how she succeeded in becoming the woman she wanted to be. She loved libraries, arguably one of the remaining few functional institutions of our dysfunctional democracy. The place where all can come and be served, filled and made whole by the wisdom of beings. We both saw them as houses of worship. They held her, nourished her, and loved her through the remarkably even course of her life. Much as the main public library in Philadelphia held and nourished my mother through the vagabondage of her youth. Tracy wanted her books to return to libraries, to the collective, back to the agora of free thought. Her office physically connected her to the USF library. Its glorious fourth-floor view overlooked the biggest green space in the whole of campus, opposite St. Ignatius Church, with a great view of the library off to the right. She loved doing her work there. By rights, she should never have had to give it up so early. I returned there August 9th to clean it out. 
though I had no desire whatsoever to do it a mere thirty-two days after she died, I knew Tracy would have wanted me to. I could hear her admonition in my head, I'm dead, let someone else use it. Office space is very hard to come by on campus. I don't need a monument to my work. I emptied out and recycled her sippy cup. I went through those books, taking the few I wanted, conscious I'd probably never take the time to read half of them, coveting them nonetheless. I tossed her toothbrush and capped her toothpaste. I took a stack of Sharpies and a 75-watt tungsten bulb that she supplanted years ago with energy-efficient CFLs. Unlike Tracy, my aesthetic preference for warmer-toned light always trumps the priority to do the environmentally right thing. I took her lamp, Japanese end table, and some paintings. I also found a folder from 1999 labeled Notes from Kate, her daughter. She added, and Aaron, her other daughter, to the label later. In it were fax cover sheets she'd sent them both concerning the memorial in Montana that summer to spread her mother's ashes. There were little notes from both her daughters, photo booth sequences of Tracy with each of them, a big Valentine's Day card from Kate, and other photos from that time. Strange how it was only from that year, that summer, that time, 1999. No other files, no other years, no other save mementos. Those were the last years the girls were girls. She kept that hodgepodge file for 17 years. Given the paucity of other files in that drawer, I'm sure she didn't forget or misplace it. She wanted it by her side. I closed the door and walked out. Her assistant Katie pointed out the poem on the glass she had taped under her nameplate, Read Me, by Naomi Shihab Nye. Watch us humans as we enter our rooms, remove our shoes and watches, and stretch out on the bed with a single good book. It's the honey of the mind time. Lights shine through our little jars. Journal entry, May 9th. The process for a human being disengaging from life is a long and slow one. I see it showing up in lots of little ways with Tracy. Starting months ago, at least October if not much earlier, she used to sit at the kitchen table for hours on her computer looking at Facebook and Twitter, checking emails, but mostly surfing the web, reading news and other articles of interest. Now she mostly plays Solitaire and Bejeweled, a video game. I know she's playing it now, lying on the bed. I can hear her sniffling. I imagine it's all part of the process of letting go. The story I tell myself is that it's necessary to grieve all that is being left behind. Everyone will have their own way of coming to terms with their demise. May 11th. She talks about dying so readily now. It's been a somewhat sudden, but also slowly evolving process over the last four months or so, going back to January, starting with I don't want to die, cries of anguish. But considering that we just decided Friday with Dr. Lopez to cease chemo, and at that time her response 15 minutes later was, I'm in shock. 
To hear it is only Monday, and it seems she's in total acceptance. She's been making gallows humor jokes about it all yesterday. We sat down and made a list of all the things we have to do beforehand, her by far more than me. I keep saying death doesn't arrive with a save-the-date notice, but now I'm wondering if that's not true. If we really listen and observe closely, maybe death does arrive on schedule. Tracy is certainly doing her own magnificent, accepting, generous part to welcome it. To have this kind of time to plan, it's just so much the opposite of what everyone exclaims when they first receive such news. There's no time left. Not true. There's plenty if we take it with acceptance and don't act in denial. Grace emerges naturally if we accept what comes and make room for it. May 15th. On one hand, I want to still live a long time, but on the other, I want this misery to end quickly. It's pretty confusing. I feel better when I'm busy, when I'm doing something. No doubt. She got the clippers out and shaved my head. For the last time? Telling me, when I'm gone, you can get $7 haircuts at the Barber College at MacArthur and Telegraph. There are so many things to take care of. I'm afraid I'm going to forget some. I said it's inevitable and I'll deal with them. As per usual, she doesn't want to leave me with them, to be burdened by them. May 16. I'm so grateful for easy and peaceful days like today, with no great storms of emotion and tears. When Tracy doesn't feel too awful and spends time in the kitchen sewing, planning her quilt, even humming and singing for periods of time. Sweet and easy. So glad. May 28. Tracy seems to be moving inexorably to accepting euthanasia. She says she doesn't have it in her for sticking it out to the bitter end. I understand. There's some beauty and power in deciding for yourself enough. And in determining when that should be, I only cautioned her against making the decision based too much on what's better for everyone else, especially her family. She's afraid they won't be able to take a long, drawn-out dying process. I get that. But I think it's important the decision puts her needs first, making sure it serves her first and foremost. I don't want her to go to her grave primarily living out and through her caretaker role for others. Plus, who is she to decide what's best for her adult children and other family members? This could be an opportunity for significant growth for many of them, not to mention a decision contrary to their own needs and wants. The other night in bed, Tracy was commenting on how she feels different strange bodily sensations, like someone was walking on her toes, or we were having an earthquake and the bed was vibrating. I assured her that I wasn't experiencing those things. Certainly the pot and other drugs like Dilaudid are contributors, but I also wonder if it isn't death closing in, announcing his presence, creeping around. June 1st. I will not vomit. I will not vomit. I will not vomit. Tracy walks down the hall chanting aloud. Now she's in the bedroom coughing. Soon she'll be in the bathroom vomiting. 
It's painful as hell for her, of course, but for me too, and it's making me furious not to be able to do anything about it. I can see how caregivers can become abusers by turning their frustration and impotence on their beloved patients. June 16. Tracy is turning into a skeleton right before my eyes. Last night, as we lay in bed talking, I looked at her profile, and it was like she was already dead, her skull hanging in a professor's lecture hall. I can't believe how much weight she's already lost. It's like the decomposition process can't wait until after death. It's getting a head start. The sight takes my breath away. I hope she can last another month so her family can at least all see her before she passes. It pisses me off that Aaron is not scheduled to come for another two weeks and Kate isn't even planning on coming. It seems like another generational failing in the making. I pointed out to her my concern that her daughters might face half a lifetime of regret by not visiting Tracy more, or at all, before she goes. She said she'll write Kate and explain the urgency of the situation. We'll see if and how Kate responds. June 19. Tracy looks like a Holocaust survivor. I can feel all the bones in her back when I hug her. She's in the living room now watching TV. I guess that's how it goes now. When she's feeling better, she watches TV in the living room. When she's not feeling well, she stays in bed and plays video puzzles and naps. I keep projecting all the things that I would rather be doing when I die onto her, and I need to stop. Whether it's going for a walk, sitting in the park, listening to a good book or Dharma talk, getting a massage or doing a hot tub soak, Whatever sounds good to me is not necessarily, or often remotely, what she wants. I just want these last days to be meaningful and fulfilling. Maybe just being peaceful is enough. June 28. We had a date today and went to the movies to see The Lobster and had dinner. Tracy tried to pay for the movie ticks but got confused and couldn't handle coming up with $17 for us. It's heartbreaking. It's not the disease, it's the drugs. She drifts in and out of consciousness all morning, mostly napping. In the movie, late afternoon, she dropped off a couple of times for a while. I put my hand over her eyes to double-check. And now her ankles are swelling and getting yellow spots. And her eyes turned yellow. All from the jaundice, the breakdown of the liver. It's happening so fast, it seems. Can she really make it another four to five months? It seems so unlikely. I'm glad Kate has finally decided to come July 25th, and Aaron will be here Thursday. The time is now. There are no tomorrows. She's so frail. June 29. She's been bringing her fingers to the sides of her mouth often in the last week. I asked her why. She said, checking for drool. Since I didn't believe there was actually drool there, I only saw some once or twice. In recent days, she took to wiping her mouth and showing me, see, drool. Now when Tracy zonks out from the drugs, she has this weird habit of holding a hand to her mouth, a finger often to her lips. She'll be totally conked, 
but frozen in that position. Her eyes rolled back in her head, her mouth open, sometimes her head tilted back, other times not. It's painful to see. It's a death mask, a prelude to the final moment. It's no doubt to check on whether she's drooling. July 1st. Perhaps the hardest thing of all to see go is her mental clarity. She has such a sharp and beautiful mind. Now when I'm talking with her, half the time she nods out and is gone. Increasingly, while talking, she'll say things that are complete non-sequiturs, coming out of her dream landscape. It's hard to know when I should engage and follow up with what and ask for explanations or what to just let go. July 5th. Yesterday I resolved to be grateful for every day that Tracy is still alive. It started on Sunday, July 3rd, when I left Tracy and Aaron to go for a swim. Aaron was lying on her bed holding Tracy's hand as she drifted in and out of consciousness. I left thinking, Tracy could die right now. That'd probably be a good way for her to go, holding her daughter's hand, having her close. So I went swimming with that thought. Of course, the whole time I found myself obsessing that she was dying as I was swimming. So when I got home, I was delighted to see her still alive. That's when I resolved to be truly grateful for each day she has left. So it's good to remember that, especially now, only two days later, when it feels like it could happen at any moment. Tracy spent all morning sleeping, but when she wakes, as she's done the last two nights throughout, she's confused. She sits up quite suddenly, tries to get her bearings, then launches herself forward, either to the bathroom or out the door to the hallway. If she goes into the kitchen or living room, she'll sit for a few minutes, confused, and then get up and go back to bed. Is this the motor of life kicking in when it still can, at random, creating movement for its own sake, when discernible purpose has gone away? She's also getting more difficult, refusing to take certain meds because they taste bad, telling me to stop asking so many questions when I ask where she's going in the night, telling me it's too much pressure when I hold her hand, however lightly. I assume it's all part of the final stage of letting go, when even the presence of the beloved is too intrusive and the dying need to be more with the dead. This morning she asked, Why are all the little girls in the movie? If there are a lot of little girls there, sounds like a good movie for her to be in. So today is now the official beginning of the end. The hospital bed is being installed in the bedroom. Gabriella was here at noon and said most likely a few days to a week. I've contacted the key relatives, all four women. Hopefully Erin and Kate will get here tomorrow and not wait till Thursday. She's going fast. She's been sleeping all day. When she gets up, she flutters about with anxiety, then lies down again and moans or sighs. She's confused. But Gabriella did get through to her about the urgency. Later, Tracy said to me, I'm in shock. No doubt. The poor girl's been thinking she has at least another month, maybe two. I certainly didn't want to disabuse her, 
and now here it is. It seems Shannon will only book her flight if she knows the exact date of her death, i.e., if she's opted for assisted suicide. Otherwise, she's waiting for word for the funeral. Sheesh. Tara's in Scotland. I sent her an email. I'm glad I'm cried out for the moment. I've been breaking down sobbing off and on all day. How someone so vibrant and alive, albeit slowed, one day can become so near death the next is amazing. But that's literally the case between yesterday and today. I know that in time it's her beauty, vibrancy, and aliveness I'll most remember, but this is tough. She looks like she aged ten years since yesterday. Literally. It's like someone just pulled the plug. I have no idea what I'm going to do with all her stuff. Hopefully her kids will take most of it. At least now things are set for the end. The hospital bed is here, the commode, the side table, everything a person needs to die. And no sooner had I written earlier today that at least she has no breathing problems, she duly reported that she does. She can't get enough air. So on the advice of the hospice nurse, I gave her a quarter milligram of oxycodone. Hopefully that'll help. I also gave her one milligram of Haldol a little before four hours, but who cares? And still there's a part of me that hopes I'll wake up tomorrow and find that it was all a dream. I'll roll over and hug Tracy, and we'll laugh together at some of the sillier things that have happened. And now Kate and Aaron are driving down, through the night, to get here by 7.30 a.m. Finally, a sense of urgency. July 6. Events are happening so fast I can't keep up with them. Tracy is now expected to die within the next 24 to 36 hours. I was trying to calm her anxiety this afternoon, telling her to relax, that all is as it should be. Her brow was furrowed and her neck muscles taut. I asked if she was in pain and she said no. Reminds me of a brief conversation from circa 3 a.m. two nights ago. Hard to remember, they're all blending together now. When she sat up, as she would so often, and sit confused on the bed, I asked what she was doing. She said, I'm wrestling. What are you wrestling, I asked. I need to fidget, is the answer I remember, or I'm fidgeting. I get it, or so I imagine. Does dying feel like resignation? All those efforts to sit up and walk into the kitchen were like an assertion to life. I am alive, and I can assert my will. Is that the very last thing to go, the last vestige of living to be surrendered to death? Or is it that I'm being too philosophical and it's really much simpler? She had nervous energy she needed to burn off. Now that I think about it, it's probably that. Tracy was always simple when I was prone to lofty pronouncements. July 7th. A beautiful soul has left this plane. Sweet, beautiful Tracy is no more. After sitting a couple moments in wonder... I thought I'd better wake her girls. I knocked lightly, said, Your mother's gone, and they came in the room. I had my head on the metal bar by her side. I started sobbing. Not just at my grief for having lost her, 
but at the beauty of it all. We sat together for a while, crying. Then I got up to smudge the house. I burned a large bundle of sage, carrying it through the house, ending in the bedroom where her body lay. I smudged Tracy and the entire room. I may have been muttering prayers. I called the hospice number at Kaiser to report she died. She said Gabriella was scheduled to stop by at 7 a.m. anyway. I told her there was no need for her to come sooner. Tracy's daughters went back to sleep. I lay down on our bed right next to Tracy's hospital bed and rested. Gabriella was her usual prompt self and showed up at 7. I explained at the door that Tracy had died at 4.27. She gave me a hug. I showed her to the bedroom. She examined her, double-checked for a heartbeat and pulse, then sat down on the bed. I went to reawaken the girls. When I returned, I noticed Gabriella had wiped away the soft foam that had formed between Tracy's lips when she died and had remained there for the subsequent few hours. I asked her about it, and she confirmed having done it. Aesthetics, I thought, and smiled. She did look better. You could see the whiteness of her teeth, a whiteness that seemed all the more remarkable in death than in life, given the yellow pallor of her skin and the shrink-wrapped sheaf of her torso. That's when Gabriella told me about removing the body. She explained to me that legally I could take up to 72 hours before having Tracy's body removed. I was so grateful. I assumed that it had to be handled immediately following death. It gave me the opportunity to spend a final day with Tracy. She reviewed other information for me, the legal and medical protocols of dying, disposing of the meds, arranging for pickup of the bed, and wheelchair, getting further bereavement support from hospice. I asked her something about herself. She commented on how working with some of her best patients was all too brief because they often died quickly and peacefully with relatively few complications. After a few minutes, assured that all was in hand, she hugged me and left. I knew it was likely the last time I would see her but somehow it only occurred to me later that I was making yet another lifetime goodbye. End of journal entries. At some point, I gave the girls some time alone with their mom. I asked them again if they wanted to join me in washing the body. Both said no. I filled a wash basin with warm, soapy water and set about my task. Rigor mortis had already stiffened the body considerably. Rolling her from side to side was hard enough, but to get to those hard-to-get areas was much more challenging. Thinking back now, I wish I summoned the wisdom to sing a sacred song or two. Instead, I cried the entire time and repeated over and over how much I loved her. I was able to remove her diaper. I noted with sadness how she wet herself slightly and wondered if that had been recent or some hours ago since it had been almost 20 hours since we put it on. I have no understanding why, but I believe washing her was one of the most profound things I've done in my life. 
There must be a reason why so many religions insist on the practice. Obviously, sanitation and health. But aside from that? Maybe because it's the final act of devotion. I know no other possible answer. In Jewish tradition, it's considered the only act of giving kindness that expects no gift in return. Somehow it seems the perfect bookend with wedding. In a Zen wedding like ours, we bow to each other at the altar. Marriage should be a partnership based on deep mutual respect and equality. In death, we figuratively bow to our beloved again by cleaning the body. The greatest number of photographs I have of Tracy are from our wedding. They surround me now. They, too, are part of our time together. They, too, remind me of my final opportunity to love her body. After washing her, I remember sitting on the bed trying to meditate. It was extremely difficult. I kept wanting to throw myself on her and weep some more. Tears came and went, but the pull to her body was immense. Maybe it was my desire to die, too. If so, I only grew conscious of that later. This wasn't monkey mind. This was some gravitational force pulling me sideways, back to her bedside, back to gazing in wonder at her face in death, her sublime final repose. I recently ran across this quote from The Death of Ivan Ilyich. The expression on the face said that what was necessary had been accomplished, and accomplished rightly. That was certainly true about Tracy. She had done all that was necessary, and she did it in a good way, righteous and loving. That's why, with respect and honor, I share one of the photos I took within an hour following her death. I hope Tracy would approve. She certainly stood for truth in dying. She approved anything that might help another face their own death or face the dying of a loved one. She still looks beautiful to me. I spent much of the afternoon alone with her. I had relatively few things to tend to, and with Tracy's sisters arriving, the house was already filling up. I got to retreat to our bedroom for solitude and peace. To lie beside her with the quiet and the soft afternoon light was healing. I remembered the experience of my father's death and the overwhelming sense of having nowhere of my own to be alone with my feelings. Now I felt tremendous gratitude that finally at 60 I had a place to go, to be. I had the bedroom that we shared and I had her body beside me. I even had our master bathroom to use if I needed it so I wouldn't have to walk out to use the one in the hall where the others were. I could be fully alone with my grief. It was such a relief. Everybody always says, now she's at peace. Now she's no longer suffering in pain. I didn't feel any of that. What I felt was an immediate connection back to the life we shared for so many years, a life of tranquility, peace, and ease. With her there not breathing beside me, I felt safe and comforted, our relationship restored. I braced myself when it was time for me to leave the room, but eventually I needed to be a host, 
tending to other people, making arrangements. Family members needed to return home and resume their lives. We set the private family viewing and memorial service for 48 hours later. If it were up to me alone, I would have called the funeral home, told them to pick her up in three days, and spent the entire time there in the bedroom with her. I would have had the memorial service a week later. Life intrudes upon sorrow. I suppose it's a good thing, but it intrudes upon peace, too. In the evening, the doorbell rang and two people from the funeral home arrived to retrieve the body. The lead man asked if Tracy was wearing any jewelry. I said no. He then wrote down what I told him, that the body had been washed. I gave him the Iranian gown that Tracy used in her final months as a house dress and the scarf that she elaborately wove around her head to hide her baldness. I wanted her to be dressed in them for the viewing. He wrote down, gown and scarf. I asked if they would be returned to me. He said yes. And yet they were not. They were burned with her in the crematorium. When it became clear they could hardly lift the body out of the bed, I offered to help. At that point, Tracy probably weighed no more than 120 pounds. They refused my help. I stupidly deferred. I regret not insisting. Welcome, Shadow. Do what the authorities want. It's all under control. I missed out on carrying her one last time. They barely managed to get her out of the bed in the sheet. With a piece of furniture, I would have recommended sliding it down the stairs. With Tracy, I preferred some dignity and finesse. It's beyond sobering to see your beloved wrapped in a sheet and carted down the stairs, swinging from side to side and crashing to the floor. Those were literally the words I said when they finally made it out the door. That's sobering. They were sweating and panting when they finally lugged her to the van. You'd think that funeral personnel would have a lot of experience dealing with dead bodies. You'd think they'd have finesse and skill. Apparently not. I was haunted for some time by one of the final looks Tracy gave me. The afternoon before she died, we moved her out of our bed and onto the hospital bed. Fortunately, we had Gabriella's help. The night before had been one of our most challenging nights. I woke up to find Tracy passed out on the toilet, her head hanging down between her legs, urine all over the floor. I didn't know what to do. I woke her, then helped her stand up, and somehow walked her back to bed. She was crying out the whole time in pain because I was squeezing her so tightly. I was terrified of dropping her. It was then I realized that the bed and her nightdress were also soaked. She was so out of it, it was hard to know what she could and couldn't do. I stood her up again, managing to get her dress over her head. I wiped her down with towels, then grabbed a clean T-shirt to keep her warm. I wanted to use one of mine so it would fit loosely. Only when she collapsed back on the bed did I realize I'd put it on inside out. I knew I'd never be able to change the sheet with her in the bed, so I put a towel down over the urine. Fortunately, it was mostly confined near the edge. I covered her up and kissed her, then set to wiping down the bathroom floor. I should have let her sleep, but I was afraid she still had to pee, 
so I asked her if she needed to. Maybe she never understood my question, but she said yes. So I put the commode by the bed and tried to lift her up. Again she cried out. I turned her and lowered her onto the seat. She probably never realized what was then supposed to happen. I waited a while, then asked if she'd peed. She said yes. So again I lifted her and awkwardly tried to pivot to drop her on the bed. Again she cried out. I laid her down and covered her up. I looked in the commode. It was dry. Perhaps the vague memory of all that was in her mind the next day. Her daughters arrived about six. When the stores opened, I ran out to buy adult diapers. Kate and Aaron managed to get one on her and change the sheets. Gabriella arrived and said we absolutely have to get her into the hospital bed, so she made ready. When I was called back into the room, Tracy was still lying uncovered on her side of the bed, naked and looking extremely vulnerable. We needed to lift her up to get her on the sheet on my side of the bed. I thought if she could simply roll over like kids rolling down a hill, then we wouldn't have to lift her. I thought this might be easier for her and for us. Then she said something like, I don't want Frederick doing this. She knew I didn't know what I was doing. She probably recognized that I didn't realize how incapacitated she was. Maybe she simply couldn't roll over. Maybe it was the lifetime hangover from You're Not the Boss of Me, one final return to our last fight in the hospital. I don't know, but it stung. Clearly, she didn't want me controlling the process. She didn't trust my judgment. Thank God Gabriella was there. So we rolled the ends of the sheet and lifted her over to my side of the bed. The pressure must have hurt her because she cried out. But it wasn't too difficult. Perhaps she cried out from fear. I was perplexed. I couldn't figure out exactly what the matter was. I asked, are you in pain? She shook her head, whispering no. Then I asked, are you feeling sad? That's when she gave me the look the look of unmitigated skepticism and judgment, the look that told me my question might contend for the stupidest question of all time. I was trying to problem-solve. She was dying. Perhaps it was the stupidest question of all time. I'm glad I have a photograph of her making a similar expression. Though her look the day she died was harsher, it was in the same vein. I'm glad this photo was from an earlier, happier time, because I will carry the memory of her penultimate look for some time with shame and regret. The last photos of Tracy and I together are from two months before she died, when I had the presence of mind to start taking pictures. Light was still pouring through her little jars. Most of our entire preceding life in fact, dating back to 1985 and my return from two years in China, I vowed to stop taking pictures. It was my typical stubbornness. Taking pictures was my professional work, and I didn't want to work when I wasn't working. I also understood how photographing mediates my experience and takes me out of the aliveness of the moment. So there's no wealth of pictures of Tracy and me from our 13 years together but I have a few, ones often taken by others, thank God. 
The ones I took on May 8th are possibly the ones I prize above all others. Yes, there's poignancy. We both knew what was coming. The connection we had is tangible. Our eyes were fixed on each other. Those light beams of love that were her eyes are on high. We used it as yet another opportunity to play together. Midway through the nine photos, Tracy, the wardrobe assistant, thought better of exposing her bald head and put on her knitted cap. In later weeks, she'd dispense with faux and drop all remaining pretense. She didn't wear a hat or scarf to her life-honoring celebration. After the ninth photo, she said, enough. It was making her too sad. I remember the catch in her voice asking me to stop. Here are all nine photos in the sequence they were taken. This is my speech at Tracy's USF Memorial, September 14, 2016. We talked about what I should do with her ashes after she was cremated. The last thing she wanted was to recreate the inconvenience that her family went through when her mother died, asking her family to spread her ashes from a mountaintop in Montana. Tracy was practical and didn't want to inconvenience anyone. There was also no particular outdoor location that spoke to her, however pristine and beautiful, and she'd seen a lot of stunning, dramatic vistas. She certainly loved San Francisco, but never found that one specific location to call home. In retrospect, it seems like one more sad reflection of the childhood rootlessness she suffered and wrote about so searingly in her book, My Ruby Slippers. So I asked myself, what am I going to do with my portion of her ashes? She wasn't interested in a gravestone, and I wasn't interested in a grave. There's certainly a romantic in me that would have been happy to pilgrimage back to each of her 14 or more childhood homes in Colorado and Kansas and pour a bit of her ashes onto each lawn. I would have been happy to spread them in Tahoe Meadows or Incline Peak, just to name two Tahoe locations where we had lovely hikes a few years ago. But no place called to me and said it has to be here. Until one morning, about three weeks after she died, I awoke and said to myself, Duh, USF. We can put them in the USF community garden that she helped found and loved to tend. We can plant a tree, ideally a fruit tree, Tracy loved growing beautiful things that served the double purpose of feeding people. She loved urban farms and gardens. I thought a plum tree because we had one in our backyard in Oakland. She delighted in making plum jam, plum salsa, plum pudding, and pie. And we can put a bench there for reading, I thought. Though Tracy was nowhere happier than at home reading in bed, she enjoyed reading outdoors, too. For this lover of all things British, she would have loved this holy British tableau, the bench by the tree in the garden. The plaque on the bench will say, For Tracy Seeley, beloved English professor, advocate of students, sower of words, young voices and gardens, lover of life. April 6, 1957 to July 7, 
2016. So we just did a little ceremony out in the garden before this memorial. I confess I also wanted it for other reasons, partly selfish. I loved the idea of there being a place for former students and present colleagues to come and commune with Tracy's spirit. And for me, too, I want that place, a place where I can come and sit and remember the beauty that was my wife. It's important to have a place, a physical place, to go and commune with the dead. Though we somehow never made the connection, no one would understand that better than Tracy, she who understood the importance of place so well. So I think it's time to change the notion of her never having had a permanent home. It's time to say she did find a home, and that home is here, USF. This was and is her home. It wasn't the places we lived together, the cities of Oakland or L.A. or Budapest or even San Francisco. It wasn't the individual homes we shared, despite her great love of her place on Steiner Street or the place she shared with Pedro in the Upper Haight. I'm convinced that even if we'd finally realized her dream of buying a place in the Bay Area, it wouldn't have been that place either. It had to be USF. This was her home. The home for her love of learning. The home for her love of reading and the life of the mind. The home for her love of teaching, of growing young people into their greatest fullness. The home for her love of social engagement, for knowing that intelligence is of little use unless yoked to the service of social change, of actually doing something to make this world a better place. The home for her advocacy for the rights of workers, even worker professors, and for women, for being treated with respect and appreciation for all the gifts each offers, even when those gifts look adversarial. The home for her love of nature, of living with the deepest awareness and respect for this fragile Mother Earth who now so needs our care. The home for her love of community, of living in communion with colleagues and friends, yoked to the idea that life has its deepest meaning only when lived serving and being supported by those from within that communion. We all have two families, our family of origin and our family of choice. You were her family of choice. This was the one place that held and welcomed all that Tracy had to offer. There aren't many institutions like that, that can absorb all we are as human beings, and do so gratefully. So for that, I have tremendous gratitude to this place, and for all of you who were her family of choice. And yeah, every family's a little dysfunctional. So if Tracy were here today and could speak for herself, I think this is what she'd say. Thank you for giving me this home. Thank you for being my family of choice. All her life, she was full of gratitude, even in her last months. Though she absolutely did not want to die, she was tremendously grateful for all that she'd been able to do, all the friends and colleagues she'd made and loved, all the students she'd been challenged by and broken through to reach, 
all the administrators who sounded and shared the depth of the mission of this university. That's what she would say. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I originally wanted to close my speech by reading the Merwin poem below, but knew I'd never get through it without breaking down. Instead, I asked for it to be added to the printed program. Thanks by W.S. Merwin. Listen. With the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water thanking it, standing by the windows looking out in our directions, back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging. After funerals, we are saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the door and the beatings on the stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks, we are saying thank you. In the faces of the officials and the rich, and of all who will never change, we go on saying thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, taking our feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us, we are saying thank you faster and faster with nobody listening. We are saying thank you, thank you. We are saying and waving dark though it is. <laughs>